0: Hello and good evening and welcome to another episode of Religions, Regimes and Refugees, Their Multicultural Mess and Secular Scam. Thank you so much for joining me today, my friends. I hope you're having a great day. I'm having technical problems and that's why I'm not able to post and so I hope this is going to be uploaded today, if not uh, tomorrow, but uh, we're still going to do the episode anyway. Thank you for joining me on my podcast. Your support means a lot to me, and I'm really appreciative of your presence. So today we're going to do an episode on Obama, the 21st century Jinnah. So in order to understand Jinnah, in order to understand the 21st century Jinnah, we have to go back and understand the philosophies and the events that made Jinnah who he is and the person that we remember. Um, Jinnah was the founder of Pakistan. He was also a politician prior to um Uh, Finding Pakistan, he was on the scene before uh, Mahatma Gandhi came on, Um, and he fought for independence from the British. Um, But who was the British? How did they come to India? So we're going to go backtrack a little bit, understand the philosophies, understand what happened, and then we are going to understand. Basically, we are going to understand uh, why it transpired into partition, and we're going to understand the philosophy and the mentality that now has made, um, has influenced Barack Obama to uh, talk about, um, to talk about uh, partition again and make him the 21st century Jinnah. So let's go back in time quickly. We won't take much of your time, and hopefully, you will understand. So. I'm gonna read from you a little bit from a book called Freedom at Midnight, the epic drama of India's struggle for independence by Larry Collins and Dominic Lapierre. It is an insulting uh, book. Uh, Anti-Hindic. There are some good parts in it. I I will admit. Uh, I ask you to buy it on Amazon or anywhere. But it is insulting. It's very anti-Hindic. It shows you Abrahamic mindset and philosophy. This book did very well in the world. It was first published in Great Britain in 1975. And this book, this the these are the books and philosophies that have influenced the Western mind, the European, the American, and the Muslim. In mind, um, and these are the books that have now told the tale uh, are, are the foundation of the philosophy of uh, ignorant people who call themselves presidents of uh, big of the free world, uh, and among them uh, Barack Obama. So let's just go back quickly in time, and we'll take a look at it. Um, so on page number ten, right in the beginning of the book, it says, "History's most grandiose." Accomplishments can come sometimes from very banal of origins. Great Britain was on the road to, um, was set on the road to the great colonial adventure for five miserable shillings. They represented the increase in the price of pound of pepper proclaimed by Dutch privateers who controlled the spice trade. In sense that that they were considered as a wholly unwarranted gesture, gesture twenty four merchants of the city of London gathered on the afternoon of twenty fourth of November, September, fifteen ninety nine, in a dis- discreet building in on Leadenhall Street. Their purpose was to found a modern trading firm with an initial capital of seventy two thousand subscribed by shareholders. Um, of the simplest concerns, profit inspired their enterprise which expanded and transformed what would ultimately become the most noteworthy creation of the age of imperialism the British Raj um, yes so um The British generally were welcomed by native rulers and population, unlike the zealous Spaniards who were conquering South America in the name of redeeming God. The British stressed that it was in the name of another God, uh, Mammon, that they came to India. Trade, not territory. The company's officers never ceased, repeating was their policy. Um, Inevitably however, as their trading activities grew, company officers became embeshed in Enmeshed in local politics and forced in order to protect their expanding commerce to intervene in the squabbles of petty sovereign of on whose territories they operated. Thus became the irreversible process which would lead England to conquer India almost by inadvertence. In the beginning it was trade, not territory. Just remember they wanted trade. They were not interested in territory. On June the 23rd in 1757, marching to through a drench, drench, drenching rainfall at the head of 900 Englishmen of the 39-foot and 2,000 Indian sepoys, an audacious general named Robert Clive routed the army at of a troublesome Nawab in the rice paddies outside Bengal village of Plassey. Clive's victory opened the gates, of Northern India. With it, the British conquest of India truly started. Their merchants gave way to the builders of the empire and territory. Not trade became the primary concern of the British in India after after 1757. Uh, the century was followed w- was one of conquest, although they were specifically instructed by London to avoid schemes of conquest and territorial expansion. A succession of ambitious governor generals relentlessly embrace the opposite policy. In less than a century of company of traders was metamorphosed into a sovereign power, its accountants traders into generals and governors, its race for dividends into a struggle for imperial authority. Without setting out to do so, Britain became the successor of the Mughal Empire. Um, as early as 1818, the Marquis of Hastings noted, a time not very remote will arrive when England will, on sound principles of policy, wish to relinquish the domination which she had gradually and unintentionally assumed over the country. Um, the first manifestation of those aspirations came at the Savage Mutiny in 1857. Its most important result was an abrupt change in the manner in which Britain governed India. After 258 of fruitful commercial activities, the Honourable East India Company existence was terminated. Responsibility for the destiny of 300 million Indians were transferred to the hands of 39-year-old women whose stubby features would incarnate the work the vocation of the British race to dominate the world, the Queen Victoria. Henceforth, Britain's authority was to be exercised by the crown um, instead of the East India Company, represented in India by a kind of nominated king, ruled by ruling a fifth of humanity, the Viceroy. Ultimate responsibility was exercised at any given time by a little band of brothers. 2,000 members of the Indian Civil Service, the ICS, and 10,000 British officers of the Indian Army. Their authority, over 300 million people, was sustained by 60,000 British soldiers and 26,000 men of Indian Army. No statistics would measure better than those of the nature of British rule in India. After 1857, or the manner in which the Indian masses were long prepared to accept it, Uh, The India of caste. um, Sorry. And here we go. Um, Sorry. And I'm going to come here. Um, India represented a challenge and adventure, uh, for the young English boys who came to our shows. It's boundless spaces, an arena on which in England's young men could find a fulfillment in their islands, um, their islands from their islands more restricted shores might deny them. They arrived at the docks in Bombay at 19 and 20, barely able to raise a stubble on their chins. They went home 35 or 40 years later, their bodies scared, scarred by bullets, by disease, a panther's claws, or fall on the polo field. Their faces ravaged by too much of sun and too much of whiskey, but proud of having lived their part of the romantic legend. Uh, The first lesson a young officer learned um was england ran india but the english dwelt apart much of the tone for this victorian india was set by the memsabs that's the british wives to a large extent the social segregation of the english and the indians was the doing of these Memsabs. The purpose perhaps was to shield their men from exotic temptations of their Indian sisters, a temptation to which the first generation of Englishmen in India had succumbed with zest, leaving behind a new Anglo-Indian suspended between the two worlds. The great pastime of the British of India was sport, cricket, tennis, squash and hockey would be With the English language, the most enduring heritage that they would leave behind. Golf was introduced in Calcutta in 1829, 30 years later before it reached New York, and the world's highest course laid out in the Himalayas at 11,000 feet. Um, No poignant account of the British in India was ever written than that inscribed on the tombstones of the cemeteries. Um no site n- no site those graveyards offered was sadder, nor more poignantly revealing of the human price the british the British paid for their Indian adventure than their rows upon rows of undersized graves. They crowded every cemetery in India um, in appalling numbers. They were the graves of children, children and infants killed in a climate for which they were not being bred, by disease uh, they would not have known in their native England. Sometimes a lone tomb, sometimes three or four in a row, those of an entire family wiped out by cholera or by jungle fever. The epitaphs upon those graves were a parent's heartbreak, a frozen stone. In memory of those poor little villies, um, beloved um, example, one says, in the memory of poor little Willie, the beloved and only child of bomber William Talbot and Margaret Adelaide Tal- Talbot, the Royal Hoss Brigade, born Delhi 14th, f- December 1862, died Delhi, seven, died Delhi 17th, July 1863. So that's just examples, okay. Their great weakness was the distance, however, from which they exercised their authority, Uh, the terrible smugness uh, setting them apart from those who they ruled. Um, Never was the attitude of racial superiority summed up more succinctly than by a former officer of the Indian civil service in parliamentary debate. there was, he said, a cherished conviction shared by every Englishman in India, how the highest to the lowest, by the planter's assailant in his lonely bungalow and the editor in full light of his presidency town, from the chief commissioner in charge of an important province to the viceroy upon his throne. The conviction in every man that he belonged to a race which God had destined to govern and subdue. From 1918, recruiting the Indian Civil Service became increasingly difficult, increasingly Indians were accepted to the ranks of both Civil Service and the Officers Corps. On New Year's Day, 1947, barely a thousand British members of the Indian civil service remained behind, still somehow holding 400 million people in their administrative uh, grasp. They were the last standard bearers of an elite that had outlived its time, condemned at last by secret conversation in London um, into the currents of history. That was the start of how the British came to India and this coming back, coming to India, also came to an end. And to find that end, we had the independence movement, uh, out of which the original group, uh, should I say one of the original people in those groups, uh, was Jinnah, uh, Muhammad Ali Jinnah, who came on the scene much before Gandhi. He was a well-established minister, uh, person in the freedom movement, um, by then, uh, few of the English, however, who negotiated with Gandhi had liked him. Fewer still understood him. Their puzzlement was the understandable, uh, was understandable. He was a strange blend of great moral principles and quirky obsessions. He was quite capable of interrupting their serious political discussions with a discourse on the benefits of sexual con- contents on a daily salt and water and nemmer. Wherever in Gandhi went, it was said that there was a capital in India. Its capital this new year 's day was a tiny Bengali village of Sri Rampur, where the Mahatma laid down mud pack, his mud packs, exercising his authority over an enormous cont- um, continent over without the benefit of radio, electricity, or running water thirty miles by foot from the nearest telephone or the Telegraph line, the region of Naukali in Sri Rampur was said was one of the most inaccessible in India, a jigsaw of tiny islands in the waterlogged delta formed by the Ganges and the Brahmaputra River. Uh, the Naukali outbursts were isolated sparks. Um, sorry. Um, I beg your pardon. New Year's Day, 1947, in Sri Rampur should have been an occasion of intense f- satisfaction. Um... Uh, He stood that day on the brink of achieving the goal he had fought for most of his life, India's freedom. Yet as he approached this glorious climax of his struggle, Gandhi was desperately an unhappy man. The reasons of this unhappiness were everywhere manifest in the little village in which he made his camp. Sri Rampur had been one of the unpronounceable names figuring on the reports, arriving almost daily on Clement Attlee's desk for from India. Inflamed by fanatical leaders, by reports of Hindu killings, their co-religionists in Calcutta, its Muslims, like Muslims, all across Naukali had suddenly turned on the Hindu minority that shared the village with them. They had slaughtered, raped and pillaged, and burned forcing their neighbors to eat the flesh of the sacred cow, sending others fleeing from safety in their rice paddies. Half the huts of Sri Rampur had blackened, were blackened ruins. The now outbursts were isolated sparks, but the passions which had ignited them could easily have come from become a firestorm to set the whole subcontinent ablaze. The horrors and the outbursts which had preceded them in Calcutta and those which had followed the north northwestern Bihar were with equal brutality a Hindu majority had turned on a Muslim minority, and explained the anxiety of Attlee's conversation with the man he urgently wanted to dispatch to New Delhi as the new Viceroy, Lord Louis Mountbatten. So Gandhi, because uh, this was a pilgrimage of penance, he decreed that he wanted no other compassion from God. Only four of his followers would accompany him. They would live on whatever charity the inhabitants of the village they visited were ready to offer them. Let the politicians of the Congress party and the Muslim League wrangle over India's future in their endless Delhi debates, he said. It was as if it had always been in India's villages, that the answer to her problems would be found. This, he said, would be his last greatest experiment. If he could rekindle that lamp of neighbourliness in the villages cursed by blood and bitterness, their example might inspire the whole nation. Here in Naukali he prayed he would get set alight again the torch of non-violence, and conjure away the spectra of communal warfare which was haunting India. So, again, this is the book's Freedom at Midnight. Okay, there's some parts that are good, but some parts are very anti Hindu, which have uh, influenced the image and the mentality of Western media, Western society, Islamic society. And I'm going to go onwards and I'm going to show you how it has. Okay, um, the fraternal bloodshed Gandhi hoped to check had for centuries uh, rival hunger uh, as India's sternest curse. The great epic poem of Hinduism, the Mahabharata, it celebrated an appalling civil slaughter on the plains of Kurukshetra, northwest of Delhi, 2,500 years before Christ. Hinduism itself had been brought to India by the Indo-European hordes, descending from the north to wrest the subcontinent from its semi-aboriginal Dravidian inhabitants. Its sages had written their sacred Vedas on the banks of the Indus, centuries before Christ's birth. The fate of the prophet had come much later, after the cohorts of Genghis Khan and Tamerlane had battered their way down the Khyber Pass to weaken the Hindu hold on the Gangetic Plains. For the two centuries, the Muslim Mog- for two centuries the Muslim Mughals emperors had imposed their sumptuous and implacable rule over most of India, spreading in the wake of their legions um, the message of Allah, the One and the Merciful. So. No guts, this person got to tell uh, the, the writers of this book have got to talk about the uh, hordes of invaders, genociders had come through Islamic invasions of India. But he talks about. He has the guts, these people have the guts to say Hinduism itself had been bought to India by Indo-European hordes descending from the north to, to rest the subcontinent from Aboriginal Dravidian inhabitants. Uh, no guts. Okay, and this is this is Abrahamic supremacy where they degrade you to, be- to their benefit and to your detriment. Okay. So here we go again. Um, the two great faiths were planted on the subcontinent. Would uh, were as different as could be found from the manifestation of man's eternal vocation to believe. Where Islam reposed on a pro- man, the prophet, and the precise text, the Quran. Hinduism was a religion without a founder, or a real truth, a dogma, a structured liturgy, or a churchly establishment. For Islam, the creator stood apart from creation, um, ordering and presiding over his work. To the Hindu, the creator and his creation were one and indivisible. And God, a kind of all-pervading cosmic spirit of whose manifestations there would be no limit. The Hindu, as a result, worshipped God in almost any form he chose. In animals, ancestors, sages, spirits, and natural forces, and divine incarnations, the absolute. He could find God manifested in snakes, folly, water, fire, planets, and the stars. To the Muslim, on the contrary, there was but one God. Allah and the Quran forbade the faithful to represent in him any shape or form. Idols and idolatry to the Muslim were abhorrent paintings and statues, blasphemous. A mosque was a spare, solemn place in which the only decorations permitted were abstract designs and repeated representations of the 99 names of God. Idolatry was um, Hinduism's natural form of expression and a Hindu temple was the exact opposite of a mosque. It was a kind of spiritual shopping centre, a clutter of goddesses and snakes coiling from their heads, six-armed gods with fiery tongues, elephants with wings talking to the clouds, jovial little monkeys dancing maidens and squat phallic symbols. Uh, It was a jungle so complex that only a handful of humans who devoted their lives to its study could find their way through it. At its core was a central trinity, Brahma the creator, Shiva the destroyer, Vishnu the preserver, positive, negative, neutral forces eternally in search as their worshippers were supposed to be, the perfect equilibrium the attainment of the absolute. Behind them were God and goddesses for the season, the weather, the crops, the ailments of man. Uh, the smallpox goddess revered each year in rituals strikingly similar to the Jewish Passover. The greatest barrier to Hindu Muslim understanding, however, was not f- metaphysical, it was social. It was the system which ordered Hindu society caste. Again, here comes the lies again, okay? Um, According to the Vedic scripture, caste originated with Brahma, the creator. Brahmins, the highest caste, sprang from their mouth. Kshatriyas, the warriors, the rulers, from the biceps. Vaishyas, the traders and the businessmen, to their ties. Shudras, artisans, uh, uh, craftsmen, from their feet. Below them were the outcasts, the untouchables who were not sprung from the divine soil. The origins of the caste system, however, were notably less divine than those suggested by the Vedas. It had been a scheme scheme employed by Hinduism's Aryan founders to perpetuate the enslavement of India's dark Dravidian populations. The word for caste, Varda, meant colour, again a lie, my dear friends, in brackets. And the centuries later, their dark skins of india 's untouchables gave graphic proof of the system 's real origins. The five original divisions had multiplied like cancer cells into the five thousand subcast eighteen eighty six for the Brahmins alone. Every occupation had its caste, splitting society into miracle myriad of closed gills into which a man was condemned by his birth to work, live and marry and die. So precise were the definitions that an iron smelter was in a different caste or an iron smith. Linked to the caste system was the second concept basic to Hinduism, reincarnation. A Hindu believed his body was was just a temporary garment of his soul. Each life was the only was only one of the soul's many incarnations, its journey to eternity, a chain beginning and ending in some nebulous merger with the cosmos. The karma, the accumulated good and evil of each mortal lifetime, was the soul continuing burden. It determined whether in its next incarnation the soul would move up or down in the hierarchy of caste. In brackets, puke all over the place. The caste had been a super device to perpetuate in the social equ- equities by giving them divine sanction, as the church had counseled the peasants of the Middle Ages to forget the misery of their lives in the contemplation of the day after. So Hinduism had for centuries counseled the miserable of India to accept their lot in a humble resignation of the best assurance in of a better destiny in the next incarnation. To the Muslims who who to whom Islam was a kind of brotherhood of the faithful, that whole system was an anatima, a generous, welcoming faith, no guts to say that they were a colonial empire full of genocides who killed each other and fought each other for 1400 years. But here was a kind of brotherhood of the faithful, the whole system, a welcoming faith Yes, Islam's fraternal embrace drew millions of converts to the mosque of India's Mughal rulers uh, because he butchered them and enslaved their daughters. But hey, Let's carry on. Inevitably, the vast majority of them were untouchables. Seeking brotherhood of Islam and acceptance of their own faith could order them only in distant incarnation. With the collapse of the Mughal Empire, the beginning of the 18th century, a marital Hindu renaissance spread across India, bringing with it a wave of Hindu-Muslim bloodshed. Britain's conquering presence had forced its packs Britannica on the warring subcontinent. But the mistrust and suspicion in these two communities dwelt remain. The Hindus did not forget the masses of Muslims were descendants of untouchables who fled Hinduism to escape their misery. Caste Hindus could not touch food in the presence of Muslims. A Muslim entering a Hindu kitchen would pollute it. A touch of Muslim's hand would send a Brahmin shrieking off to purify himself within hours of ritual ablutions. Um, Hindus and Muslims shared villages rating Gandhi's visit to Naukali, just as they shared the thousands of villages all to the northern tier of India's Bihar, the United Provinces of Punjab. They dwelt, however, in geographically distinct neighborhoods. The frontier was a road or a path, frequently called the middle way. No Muslim would live on one side of it, no Hindu on the other side. Um, the Muslims' upper classes, many of those descended from the Mughal invaders, they tended to remain landlords and soldiers. Muslim masses became deeply ingrained patterns of Indian society. Rarely escaped in the faith of Muhammad, the roles that caste had assigned their forebearers in the in the faith of Shiva. They were usually 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 landless peasants in the service of Hindus and Muslims in the country, laborers and petty craftsmen in the service of Hindu employers in the city. The economic rivalry accentuated the social and religious barriers between the two communities and made communal slaughter such as that which was shuttered, the peace of Sri Rampo, a regular occurrence. Uh, each community had its pet provocations. For Hindu, Hindus it was music. Ne- music never accompanied the austere service of the mosque, and its strains mingling with the mu- mumble of faithful prayers was a blasphemy. There was no surer way for the Hindus to incite their Muslim neighbours than to set up a band outside the mosque during Friday prayers. For a Muslim, the pro- favourite provocation involved an, an, an animal, one of gray ske- skeletal skeletal beasts, uh, Lowing down their streets of every city, town, village, and in India, aimlessly wandering her fields, the object of the most perplexing of Hinduism's skulls, the sacred cow. Um, and here we go, my friends. While the British ruled India, they managed to keep a fragile balance between the two communities, at the same time using the antagonism and an instrument to ease the burden of rule. Initially, the drive for Indian independence was confined to an intellectual elite in which Hindus and Muslims ignored communal differences to work side by side towards a common goal. Ironically, it was Gandhi who had disrupted that accord. In the most spiritual of earth, it was inevitable that the freedom struggle would take uh, the guise of a religious crusade. Remember this, my dear friends. Ironically, it was Mahatma Gandhi who disrupted that accord of of differences between the Hindu and the Muslim. No man ever more tolerant, more generally free of any taint of religious prejudice than Gandhi. He uh, desperately wanted to associate Muslims with every phase of the movement. He was a Hindu and deep belief in God was the every essence of being. Inevitably, unintentionally, Gandhi's Congress Party movement began to take on a Hindu tone and the color that aroused Muslims was suspicious. The suspicions were strengthened as narrow-minded local Congress leaders persistently refused to share with their Muslim rivals whatever electoral spoils the British rule allowed. Um, A spectra grew in the Muslim minds in an independent India that they would be drowned by Hindu majority, condemned to the existence of the powerless minority in the land their Mughal forbearers once ruled. So that, my dear friend, is telling you that has nothing to do with Hindu and Muslim. It has to do with power, that the nostalgia that they had to submit and to subjugate people and slaves below them, rape their daughters, take away their lands, and have sex slaves glow. This was what, actually, Islamic India was all about. Um, in the, during, the, in, during the freedom struggle, Um, The communal tensions led to Hindu mobs storming out of their neighbourhoods looking for defenceless Muslims to slaughter. Never in all its violent history had Calcutta known that for 24 hours as savage, otherwise called as the Great Calcutta Killings or the the, uh, Direct Action Day. We all know of the Direct Action Day. Um... Uh, On the dawn of 16th of August, howling in quasi-religious fever, Muslim mobs had come bursting from their slums, waving clubs, iron bars, shovels and any instruments capable of smashing in a human skull. They came in answer to call issued by the day's Muslim League, proclaiming 16th August as the direct action day to prove to Britain and the Congress Party that India's Muslims were prepared to get Pakistan for themselves by direct action if necessary. They savagely beat to a sodden pulp any Hindus in their part and stuffed their remains in city's open gutters. The terrified police simply disappeared. Soon tall pillars of black smoke stretched up from the sore spots of the city, Hindu bazaars in full blaze. Uh, and The Hindus returned that call. Like soaked logs, scores of bloated corpses Bobbled down the Hooghly river towards the sea. Others savagely mutilated, littered the city streets. Everywhere the weak and helpless suffered the most. At one of the crossroads, a line of Muslim coolies lay beaten to death, where a Hindu mob had found them, between the poles of their rickshaws. By the time the slaughter was over, Calcutta began, belonged to the vultures in filthy grey packs they suck, suck across the sky tumbling down to the gorge themselves on the bodies of the city's 6000 dead the great calcutta killings as they became to known triggered the bloodshed in no kali where gandhi was in bihar and on the other and the other side the subcontinent in bombay that changed the course of india's history the threat the muslims had been uttering for years with their warnings of a cataclysm which would overtake India if they were denied their own state, looked terrifying reality. Suddenly India was confronted by the awful vision that had sickened Gandhi and sent him into the jungles of Naukali. Civil war. Uh, Pale lips, um, sorry... In a tent outside Bombay in 1946, he had evaluated for his followers in the Muslim Leagues the meaning of Direct Action Day. If Congress wanted war, he declared then that India's Muslims would accept their offer unhesitatingly. Pale lips pressed into grim smile. His piercing eyes alight with repressed passion. Jinnah had the day flung down the gauntlet to the Congress and to the British. He shall ha- we shall have India divided, he vowed, or we shall have India destroyed. This, my dear friend, was Muhammad Ali Jinnah. And I guarantee you, this is what Barack Obama wants to do to India. Okay? Now, let me explain India's freedom struggle to you briefly. Okay, for people who think that the freedom struggle started with Virginia, you're wrong. Uh, after the 19, and towards the end of the 19th century, um, the big empires were coming to an end. As nostalgia set in to hold on to power, they held on to small city states. They started. Uh, um, the social movements, the revolt started revolting, and each one wanted a part of of the, uh, of the loot and of the land, and they got divided into small st- city states. It happened all over Europe, Arabia. Um, it happened um, everywhere in the world. Among that was the Indian subcontinent because she was the theater of uh, proxy wars between uh, the European powers and Islamic powers who had held the Indian subcontinent as their colony. Um, Towards that end, uh, you had the elite and the nobles of the Mughals who wanted also a separate state for a separate region for Muslims. From that, you got what is known as separate electorates. Uh, Muslims have asked for separate electorates in India for uh, Muslims, uh, separate electorates uh, whereby only Muslims could vote for reserved Muslim seats, more seats in the Legislative Council and reservations of Muslims in government services, universities and so on. In undifferentiated mixed elections based on Restrictive franchise. The advantage was clearly with the Hindus and had resulted in the upper underrepresentation of Muslims. Um, so this was what um, for for example, Muslims constituted thirteen percent of the population of UP, but they did not have a single seat in the provincial council. So. Jinnah had questioned this representative nature of the delegation, and presumably because it consisted only of landlords and other notables who enjoyed hereditary privileges in the in the British Empire. But this separate electorate was started by uh, the, the the demand by Muslims who wanted separate uh, uh, reserved seats for Muslims, and this separate electorates were granted to Muslims in 1909. Um, under what is known as the indian uh, councils acts of 1909 also known as the morley minto reforms from administrative point of view separating muslims from hindus and other indian communities enhanced the position of the british as arbiters between them okay um so it was not the british who asked for this it was the muslims who asked for separate electorates earlier on they had wanted um Bengal was subdivided for administrative reasons because the British were very small in number. They didn't have many big numbers. They had to uh, administer this huge prop, this huge. Um, Uh, Land And for administrative purposes, they divided this on the basis of uh, what was then uh, perceived as separate electorate. Uh, You had majorly Hindus in in West Bengal and majorly Muslims in East Bengal. The Muslims were not happy in West Bengal, but they were happy in East Bengal and vice versa. Uh, So, that was the original starting point of it. This then tumbled down into Gandhi coming on the scene later on. Jinnah had accepted Gandhi coming on the scene. Jinnah was a great leader at that point of time. He fought for Hindu-Muslim unity. But he could not stand Gandhi because Gandhi called him a Mohammedan. And Gandhi was not very nice to him. Uh, He was an ideological and arrogant fool. And he was very an emotional of a character, he wanted an ideological character. Uh, he, he pretended to be ideological on the outside, but he knew on the inside if he didn't have mercenary or military power, he could not do anything. He needed to fight against the British. He wanted his non-violence in the front to show, but behind he had... Um, allied with the Khilafat movement. The Khilafat movement were a bunch of Muslim mercenaries and guerrilla fighters going against the British who, to help um, the falling Ottoman Empire, which never transpired. They never, they never, did, they never could achieve anything. Um, the, the Turks themselves uh, brought down the Ottoman Empire, and, and, the, and that was the end of the caliphate. The, um, the Muslims were so angry they turned on the Hindus and ha- we had the genocide of Mopla and uh, that was what happened. Of course, no one talks about it, no one has the guts and the, uh, and the arrogance to talk about it, but uh, they want to talk about Hindus being bad, Hindus being bad. And I'm not even a, a Hindu by religions, but I'm just telling you straight facts from history. This led to forming of the RSS in 1923 in what is, I think, Nagpur uh with this um Gandhi then takes over. Uh, Gandhi then takes over the Congress Party, basically. But he's using emotional manifestations and marches and, and, and dandi march and this march. But they are manifestations. When you have these manifestations, people with all types of grievance finds a vent, and they will their emotions will explode, and you will have violence. It's normal. You cannot have a volcanic eruption and say only well I want this type of stone to explode and that type of stone. An explosion brings about all types of grievances to the surface and Jinnah wanted to avoid that. He wanted to fight for independence, but through constitutional means. He was against Mahatma Gandhi, who was using emotion and the masses, which was a very destructive cocktail. From there, Jinnah was so angry with, Maham, uh, with Gandhi, he, he uh, left the Congress okay, and he went to England during this time I think he loses his wife also he goes to England for 10 years finally uh, the Indian Muslim League brings him back um, to to represent them and he starts fighting once uh, he wants um, a Pakistan now but he wants a Muslim state within the Dominion of India he doesn't want he does not want partition of India he wants within the Dominion but the the narcissistic um, and and arrogant Mahatma Gandhi and his uh, his people around him refuse to negotiate which is exactly what the Congress are today they just will not negotiate with anyone. They are not a negotiable group of people. They are a supremacist bunch that think that they have an ideology and they're going to stand by it. And Gandhi refused to negotiate. He thought he was going to win everything because he had the masses on his side, he was the majority, he used his his uh, his ideological power, his non-violence, but behind the scenes he was using Muslims as mercenaries and guerrilla wars uh, against the British um, on the sly to to bring down the British on the other side, but he was portraying himself as a winner, um, as um, as um, you know, he was portraying himself as someone who was very non-violent, which was a scam, a sneaky scam, um, and that was Mahatma Gandhi. Also, he had bought in Nehru on on board, and these were socialists. So you had the socialist wing against Mahat against. Um, the uh, free market will of Jinnah. Now people don't understand the economics behind this. Power is all about money, how you're going to administer the money. If you don't administer the money, if you don't have power, money, you don't have power. The Jinnah wanted a free market economy uh, just like the British were had in their country because he knew that was the only way to get out of this tribal mentality, this jat mentality, this communal village mentality was to give people the chance to be free market aspirants uh, and go from there, which is what he wanted, which was what Pakistan became afterwards, free market and that's why they, they were doing better than India, their currency was more stronger than India. India other on the hand was socialist because of Nehru and the socialist wing and they could not get along. In 1942 Gandhi started the Quit India movement which the British were so incensed and then they put Gandhi and all the Congress leaders in jail. From that point in 1942, the field was open because the Congress leaders were in jail. No one took up for Jinnah in until 1942 uh, because no one believed him. But with Gandhi and the Congress leaders in sale in jail, Jinnah then went from pillar to post, from village to village taking his, his, uh, his uh, uh, program of Pakistan, of now a, a, a separate country, Pakistan, uh, at that point, and from there onwards, he won the elections in forty six. Before that, he had campaigned, he used Muslims against Muslims, he used, the Muslim, he used Muslims of Umma Gandhi to come onto his side. Obviously, not everyone is going to come on your side. You will always have 50%, because the earth is not flat, the earth is cyclic. So you have 50% of Muslims with Jinnah, 50% of Muslims with with Gandhi. Both of them clash, they split the Muslims into half and it was a war, partition of was of India was a war of Muslim versus against Muslim. Basically, it was that's what it was. It was Muslim against Muslim guerrillas versus uh, guerrilla wars, warfares. Uh, mercenaries, gorillas, what we call jihadis because he had called the jihad against Hindu India Um, and so these were jihadis, Muslim versus Muslim and they split the Muslims in two and this is what we got, Uh, we got, um, we got a partition of India and this got the killings and the killings and the genocides, 40 million displaced, 1 million dead. We don't know how much, but that was what it is. But it was not the British who, who divided India, like everyone says. Uh, British split India afterwards administratively, and everyone talks about that last bit. But no one talks about what preceded the currents that formed the waves, refused to take our, um, our, um, refused to take our responsibility. And this is what we got. Now, the British originally did not want to divide India, but they supported Jinnah. Why? Because Jinnah was a free market capitalist. That's what they, want, they They wanted. They did not want the socialism because socialism was coming from the Soviet Union. They were against the Soviet Union. They were against Stalin and all of that. Um, and so they did not like Nehru um, and the Congress party. And so they took up for Jinnah, but when they realized that India was going to finally partition, because it was only a tactic Uh, When they realized it was going to partition, it got really bad. And then they had to stop. They tried to stop the partition completely because they did not want to leave India. Um, But it happened. and, And this, my dear friends... Is what happened in 1947. This was written in the book, um, and I suggest you to buy the book. But this is the mentality that the British and the West took to the West, um, brainwashed uh, all the people of the West as to this is what India really is. The Muslims of the world believe in this. But this is exactly the opposite of the book. What happened in what's written in the book is exactly what's uh, the opposite of what happened. Um, Because what happened uh, is not really completely told. And this is the mentality that has influenced uh, people like Barack Obama. They think India is caste, India is untouchable. The Hindus were the ones who were beating the minorities of Muslims. The Hindus, the Hindus, the Hindus, the Hindus. Everything that's wrong in the world is the Hindus. Like they call the natives the savage. Now they've taken over the Americas and look who's the savage now. They've taken over the Americas, they call call the natives of America the savages they took over, they destroyed them, they took over the Americas, look at the mess America is in. are they any better? No, because the real savages are them they're doing the same thing to India they're playing the divide and rule the two countries within one country, the, they're trying to put everyone in a victim group in order to use the victim for their selective outrage and their selective agendas, only to divide the country, and this is the mentality, these books called Freedom at Midnight, is the mentality behind on the that's that is that the foundation of of Barack Obama sits on and this is the Barack Obama that says oh if you vote for Modi the big bad hindu the caste the blah 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 the oh the untouchable hindu you will divide India again because actually Muslims are one who believe in the one God and they're so welcoming and everything is that. This is a divided rule, the selective outrage, as if people who do not follow your worldview, your ignorant, condescending worldview are the big bad people of the world when this is the Obama that bombed seven Muslim nations at one time. And this, my dear friends, is the foundation of the mentality of the West and America. So if you get a chance, this book is, I don't like it, but I've not finished it, but I suggest you buy it, Freedom at Midnight. And I just wanted to give you a little heads up on what the foundation, behind uh, the mentality behind the foundation of Barack Obama and his gang of leftist woke liberals and that of the entire Western world anyway. Um, And so that you could understand for yourself how Obama is taking over the mantle from Jinnah and becoming the 21st century Jinnah. On that note, I take your leave. Thank you so much. It's after a long time. I've done a 50-minute podcast. I hope you understand it. If you have any questions, don't hesitate to ask uh but if you don't um i take your leave i wish you all the best until we meet again